Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Before we read today's text this morning, um, one of the subjects that I have loved reading about is the British Royal Navy in the 18th and 19th century. I've loved reading these uh, about the history of the Royal Navy. You know, those big, tall ships, the wooden ships, you know, wooden masts, they have sails, they have... Uh, I've enjoyed reading and learning about that history. Uh, it's just fascinating to me how these ships can move through the water using just the wind, right? One of the most dangerous things for those ships, uh, because they have only wind power, is if they run into shallow water and get caught either on sand or coral. In that situation, as the ship is stuck, uh, the water is going to recede around it with the low tide, and then the weight of the ship will actually just crush the ship. It'll break in two, or the ensuing waves will come and crash against the ship and break it up, killing everybody. So it's a very dangerous situation. And when that happens, everybody on board, all the crew have to come, and they have to throw off all the stores. They have to take every cannon and throw it off. Tons and tons and tons of water, food, uh, provisions, all kinds of things have to go off. So you imagine how dangerous that situation is. But there's another danger that happens when a ship gets stuck like that. You see, those ships are designed uh, to have this incredible uh, organization and rhythm to the working of the ship. And something happens with these sailors that when the ship is stuck like that, all uh, discipline and order goes out the window. They have a mental breakdown. And instead of following orders and doing what they're supposed to do in their particular roles, they, they go to pieces. Imagine if 30% of these 200 men on this little ship no longer follow orders, but they, they disappear, they hide from duty. In fact, they impede the, the saving of the ship. Sometimes they would even get drunk and like haul on the wrong ropes. And because of this, many a ship has been lost. Well, friends, today, as we look in 2 Thessalonians 3, the Thessalonian church is in not so dissimilar situation. There are some of the church who have become idle. They've lost sight of their role as believers and are instead hindering the work of other believers and the work of the gospel. And Paul exhorts and encourages the Thessalonians to remain steadfast in living as the people of God according to the word of God in the midst of persecution, affliction, and deception. And this is my aim for you today, beloved ECC, that no matter the difficulties that you and I face, that you would be encouraged to remain steadfast in Christ, who is the one who keeps us. With that, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness 
and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked day, night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this matter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Father, I, I do pray that this morning you would encourage your people. I pray that you would show us again from your word, your plan and work of redemption, that through Christ we are kept. We are saved. And we are preserved. So I pray, Lord, that you would keep us steadfast in the steadfastness of Christ. Help me now to preach your word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to the final chapter in 2 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 3. Two weeks ago, we had Dr. Adam Brown from Gulf Theological Seminary. He was preaching from the first chapter, talking about the steadfast, uh, remaining steadfast in, the, in face of affliction, right? Despite persecutions the Thessalonian church was undergoing, they were to remain in Christ. They were to remember that Christ is going to return, bringing judgment on those who are persecuting him and relief to the saints. And last week in chapter 2, we uh, were reminded that Christ hasn't yet come, right? There was deception that was coming into the church. They were deceived by these false words, these letters from deceivers, but they are to hold fast to the word of God that had been taught to them by the apostles. The word of God is the preserving element for the Thessalonian church. Through it, they have believed the gospel, and by it, they remain focused on Jesus, who is yet to return. So, this morning, today, we're going to look at three ways that we practice a steadfast faith in action. Three ways that we practice a steadfast faith in action. First, pray the work, pray for the work of the word. Pray for the work of the word. So in verse one, Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. This is chapter three, verse one. He says, finally, Right? This is like summing up everything. Having said what I did say to you in chapters 1 and 2, finally, pray. Pray. Is it surprising to you that Paul doesn't give the Thess Thessalonians something a little more practical? Right? 
in light of all the trials that's facing the church, persecution, deception, you want to focus on prayer. Paul, don't they have bigger issues to deal with? Are there not higher priorities? Something that can actually ward off these deceivers. Well, Paul has no higher aim or ambition than seeing the work of the word go forth. Seeing the gospel go to all the nations. And that's why he asked for prayers for himself. As a missionary, he was sent out to carry the good news of Jesus Christ. To evangelize the nations, to win people to Jesus, and then establish churches in those areas. Thessalonica, the church at Thessalonica, is a fruit of that very ministry. And ultimately, it's not Paul's work. It is the work of the Word. It has sped around the world, and it is now being honored, revered, believed by the Thessalonians. And they're now co-laborers with Paul in this same work. He was first sent to them, and he probably asked somebody else to, hey, pray for me as I go to Thessalonica, preaches the gospel to believers, a church has sprung up, and he says, now you are to pray for me and the word to go forth. There are obstacles, of course. Paul also asks for prayers for deliverance from wicked and unbelieving men. He says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So Paul is asking for prayer for the work of the word and for the gospel workers to be kept. Paul wants 100% full efficacy of the gospel to go forth. And he wants the gospel also to take plant, take root, and spring up in the Thessalonian church. He reminds them that it is Christ, he will establish you, Thessalonians, and guard you against the evil one. He will fully establish them, protecting them from Satan. And Paul has this confidence. He says in verse 4 and 5, in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This theme of confidence in the, the Thessalonians runs through both of Paul's letters to the church. The Thess Thessalonians have been saved by Christ they will be made steadfast in Christ, and they are made so by the steadfastness of Christ. Ultimately, Paul is confident in the faithfulness of Jesus to both preserve and persevere his people. Friends, you and I cannot save ourselves. That is Christ's work of redemption. You and I cannot keep ourselves faithful. That is Christ's work of sanctification in us by him giving us this perseverance. Those who have believed in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins are saved by him and kept in him. I wonder if any of you this morning are struggling with this assurance of salvation. Perhaps you really don't feel this same confidence that you're reading about in 2 Thessalonians 3. Maybe you've moved to Abu Dhabi and you feel like you've left this Christian community. You've left that home, that family context, that familiar life, that comfortable way, that, that place where you just were like, you had everything, you had the relationships, you knew all the streets, you knew how to go and get food in this way. It wasn't 115 degrees Fahrenheit, right? 
And so now you feel vulnerable. Maybe this is revealing to you that you have a confidence in something other than Christ and his work for you. Or maybe you lack the spiritual maturity that God is our strong tower, our mighty protector, and that nothing on earth can take us from him nor him from us. So I would just invite you to look again, to behold God's word to us. The Lord will establish you, make you firm, make you steadfast, no matter the situation, and he will guard us against the evil one, just as we read in verses 3. One of the ways that we as believers are strengthened is through prayer. Notice that Paul addresses the plural. He says, brothers, referring to the whole of the Thessalonian church, Together, pray together for the word to speed forth in its work and be honored among all. Do you realize that tonight we will gather as a congregation in Main Hall 2 at 6 p.m. in specific obedience to this and other passages to pray together as one body? It is important that we pray individually, right? Quiet times and we meet with one another, we pray for one another. That is really important. We have a robust prayer life of our own before God individually. But when we come together as one body, the family together, our prayers do have a different tone. Instead of individuals or small groups, this is the one time that we pray together as the church, as the body of Christ. We obey Christ's command to pray as his church, specifically for the work of the word to speed forward, as we read here in 2 Thessalonians 3. It is through our collective prayers together that God continues to act. Our sovereign God, who is omnipotent, who does all that he pleases, works through the prayers of sinners. It's amazing. And so this is why we will gather together tonight, to pray for his priorities that he's given us in his work. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let me just encourage you, come tonight at 6 p.m., and pray. Be encouraged as you see God work through the prayers of your brothers and sisters of Christ, which is us praying together for uh, the work that God has given us to do. And we just hope that when we pray in verse 5, this is what's going to happen for us. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I think that when we together obey God's command to pray together, for the word of God to be honored, our hearts will be strengthened and directed to the love of God and to Christ's steadfastness. So, the first way that we see steadfast faith in action, we pray for the word to work. And second, we work according to the word. We work according to the word. In verse 6, Paul turns his attention to a significant problem in the Thessalonian church. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. There is this problem of people who are idle, walking in idleness in the church. What does this mean? I think the, t- the context helps us understand. Some in the church are walking in idleness, which means... They're not in accord with the, they're walking not in accord with the 
the tradition that they received from the disciples, the apostles. They are not working themselves. We'll find out later that it's an unwillingness to actually work that's plaguing the church. Let's ask, what is the tradition that the apostles brought to the Thessalonians? What is this example that they were supposed to follow? Well, verse 7 says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul and his associates came as missionaries. They came and preached the gospel to the Thessalonians, and they did so in a way that they sought to present an example to the Thessalonians. Namely, they brought the gospel free of charge, and they even worked on the side in order to earn enough money so they did not take anything from these young believers. It was so important for Paul and his fellow workers that the word would go forth, that it would be sped ahead and be honored everywhere, that is believed by the Thessalonians, that he did everything in his power to make sure that that would happen, including providing for himself and not taking from those he was preaching to. We know in Scripture that he would have every right to ask of and really require a payment for his services, right? The Bible talks about the gospel worker being worthy of his wages. Do not muzzle an ox while it's threshing out the grain. And Paul's laboring hard for the sake of the gospel. And yet, in this situation, for this young church, he found it to be wisest to provide for himself as a tent maker and in order to not take anything from the Thessalonians. This is the example that he gave to the Thessalonians that he wants them to imitate. Working hard. Laboring. Instead, they were idle. They were not obeying Paul's teaching. They were even busybodies, as it says in verse 11. Not only were they unwilling to work, according to the example of the teachers that God had sent, but they were busy subverting that work, causing mischief, sowing discord and division. You know, a busybody is somebody who goes around, maybe have that person at work who just like, seems to have nothing to do, and they just come to your cubicle, and they, you know, hey, what's up, how you doing, everything again, you know, and all of a sudden, like, 30 minutes are gone, and they've done nothing, and you've done nothing, right? Uh, and there's even worse examples of that, where they just keep you from working. And it says here, in verse 8 and 10, alludes to the fact that they're actually eating other people's bread. In other words, they have no money for themselves, and as they're hungry, and they're like, well, I don't know where I'm going to get my next meal, they go to other people who have been working and take from them. These idle people are a drain on the resources of the whole church. Instead of being a net producer of good works and resources to see the word go forth, to see the gospel go forth, they're causing strife in their disobedience, and they're setting a terrible example in their, unla- their laziness and unwillingness to follow after Paul's example. Some scholars suggest that this is because of chapter 2 that many are deceived. They've heard that Christ has returned. And so they're thinking, well, what if Christ has already come back? If judgment's coming, if the promises aren't true, I guess it doesn't matter anymore. In other words, they are like the sailors on the ship when the ship has run aground. And they decide, there's no hope. I'm just going to not do anything. There's no point in working any longer. There's no reason to exert yourself. 
it doesn't matter anymore. Friends, do you realize that the way in which we all work or don't work reveals what you and I believe about Christ and his return? This section, by the way, is not going after a few people who are taking it easy. No, it's not about you on that off day you had. You had a crazy week, and that Monday you just sat around eating ice cream you know, on the couch. For me, it'd be like nachos. I love nachos. And maybe you, had, you watched one too many of those episodes of Netflix, or you watched the NBA highlights. That's not what we're talking about. We all have those days. We're not talking about resting from work the diversions that you have that are in some ways benign and totally justified. No, what we're talking about here is Paul confronting a dangerous inaction and idleness in the church that could signal unbelief. Do you realize as human beings, we were made to work? God placed Adam in the garden to work and keep it. It was one of the ways of serving and worshiping God. God himself worked, creating everything in six days before resting. And so too, we are given a work to do in our humanity, a work that pleases God. In our work as stay-at-home moms or pilots or doctors or pastors, business owners, whatever, we ultimately work to glorify God. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So let me ask you, friends. Is that why you work? Are you striving in your efforts to glorify the living God? Are you tempted to idleness, to kick back and do the least amount of work in order to wind out the clock, to be done for the day, to pick up that paycheck? What does your attitude about your work say about what you believe about God? What would your coworkers say about your work ethic and attitude? Do you believe that God sees you and that he rewards faithfulness? Let me be clear here. I'm, I'm not talking about idleness is not the same thing as joblessness. There's many legitimate reasons why Some of us don't have work, right? This is a country where it can be difficult to procure a job. Visa issues, maybe you're in between jobs, maybe you've had a forced retirement, maybe you're too old to work that job anymore and they retire you. Maybe you're just too young and they won't let you have a job. Don't hear me say that if you don't have a job, you are immediately idle. Verse 10, Paul specifically says, if anyone is not willing to work, The idleness was marked by an unwilling heart to do labor. I do think this is one of the things that is difficult about Abu Dhabi, right? It's difficult to find employment here. Uh, There's difficult uh, situations for people in jobs. And sometimes you might be out of employment and you might be looking for that next situation. And it can be hard to find uh, another job. Maybe you overstay your visa, and then you start relying on others for financial support. Friends, in these moments, it might be better to return to your home country 
I want to ask you that question. Do we believe that the Lord will provide for us, for you, were you to leave Abu Dhabi and go back to wherever it is you're from? Certainly it is better to be uh, than continuing to unwisely live without a job or without a visa in Abu Dhabi. And many of you, you might be hard workers, laboring hard in your profession, and that employment that you get, right, that, that, that salary that you're earning from your work, and you're like, no, I got that down. I'm at the top of my field. It's good. Maybe you're a business owner and you're killing it, right? The market conditions are great, and you just feel so productive. It's a good feeling. What about the work of being father, a mother, a family member? Are you pouring out so much in a worldly vocation that you are consciously unwilling to give enough to your family? You think as long as I keep up the prestige and salary at work, that's all that matters. As long as I'm providing materially for my family, the emotional and spiritual needs of my family don't matter as much. What about your work as a member of the body of Christ? Are you unwilling to live out the commitments that you made when you became a member? Do you care for your fellow believers? Do you pray for them? Are you earnestly seeking to do them good? Are you comforting those who are hurting? Or are you unwilling to do the work to which you have been called as a member of the body of Christ? You might be saying, whoa, well, that's a stretch. Paul is clearly just talking about somebody's work. You're now putting a, a, stretching this out and applying it to all areas of life. I think that's pushing it a little bit far. Well, Paul is certainly addressing work. Since the people are idle and not working and are eating other people's food. But Paul goes on in verse 14 and reiterates the warning and then expands on it. No longer is it just the idol. Now it's anyone who is not obeying their commands. Verse 14 says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that, they, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Brothers and sisters, we are meant to work. We were given this work way back in creation. And it certainly applies to every area of our life. Our vocation, our calling is as believers in Christ. You get fired tomorrow, you are still a mother, a father, a son, brother, sister. You're still a member of the body of Christ. If tomorrow you don't like me and you fire me as a pastor, that's fine. Pastor is a job. What I care about, am I still walking in faithfulness to Jesus? We need to see our work as the whole life efforts to imitate Christ. Following the apostles and obey his commands. And certainly this means fulfilling this employment that God has given you. What an amazing blessing it is to have a job to provide for your family. You know, to have enough money so you can get shawarma maybe every Sunday. That's a blessing. Praise God for that. He gave you that job. He's given you the skills that you have. You may think that, no, 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 no. I went to school and I earned it and these are all mine. No, no, no. Everything you have is from God. It's His. 
Praise God you have that. You can support gospel work in the UAE. Praise God that you have given to this church and to the gospel work here. We give thanks and praise God for that. But please, let's understand the wider principle and let us not be unwilling to see our work also as followers of Christ. Let us not be unwilling to love one another in, and through each other's sin, praying for the lost to see Jesus, encouraging one another in Christ, and to go ourselves to God's Word. Let us not fail to imitate Jesus' teaching and His example that we find in Scripture. In my third year of seminary, my wife and I had a small conflict. Um, it was small, I promise. Uh, I was working at the time in the seminary. It was my third year, and I was full-time as the director of admissions, so this is like a busy job. Uh, my, my wife and I had this, I had this dream that we were going to go to seminary, and she was going to work, and I'd just be a full-time student. And then uh, somehow she got pregnant, and then uh, I know how it happened, but I mean, um, God just put a death blow to that dream, and I ended up working, and I'm thankful for that. But at some point, this is now my third year, Mercedes and Pierce are born, we have two young kids at home, and my wife gently pointed out to me, like, listen, you go to your job, and you will work hard for the seminary in your job, and you will work hard in your studies, and then when you come home, it feels like you're not even here. And it hit me to the core, because I realized I was going and I was giving everything I had to those places where I would get the approval that I wanted. And that's not something that you get when you have two little babies at home, necessarily, right? I was good at my work, and I felt like I was good at this calling to be a pastor, to, to, to learn and be a student. But I was, not, I was failing at my primary calling to be a husband and a father. I wasn't getting it. So, friends, we've seen there are two ways, these two ways that we live out a steadfast faith in action. Pray for the work of the Word. Second, work according to the Word. And then third, we must warn the people of the Word. Warn the people of the Word. Paul's admonition to the church is that we would have, not, have nothing to do with the brother who's walking in idolist. Idleness, that's what he says in verse 6. Have nothing to do with that person walking in idleness. But in verse 13, as I mentioned, he expands that to anyone not obeying what we say in this letter. Instructing them to take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Like, wow, that's, that's really heavy, Paul. This command uh, to uh, take note of somebody, to avoid them even, so that they may be ashamed. Some of you are from cultures where like the worst thing on the planet is to suffer shame, right? How could you make somebody go through that? Why would that be something that's good? Well, this is not a command to shame someone out of spite. This is a helpful tool that God has, has of bringing to light unbecoming behavior. Namely, a disobedient person should not be indulged and be treated as someone who is fully obeying the word. That's not truly loving that person. Friends, this is scripture. 
It says we are to do these things, and so we must do them. But this also implies a lot. That means, or this means, that as a church, we have to, one, know people well enough to know, are they even part of the church or not? Paul's command is to the brothers to do this for one another. It's not for the brothers to go out into the world, find non-Christians, and shame them. So let me ask you, do you know your, your fellow members of the body of Christ well enough to know, oh yeah, that's somebody who should be walking according to the word, who should be obeying this command in Scripture? This is my, the point in the sermon where I'm arguing for membership, if you don't feel that. As members, we should love one another in the body of Christ, and to do that, you have to know one another. And it's been how long since we've had to wear these masks? And I've gotten really good at memorizing people's eyes. I never thought I'd be so good at, like, I got your noses down pat. Uh, some of you, your smells. Uh, but I'm no, just kidding. Uh, someday that will come down. And what we are still to do this work of knowing who the body of Christ is, namely, who's my fellow members of the body. Let me just say once again, some easy, tangible ways you can do that. Uh, spend time after the service meeting and greeting your fellow brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters. Come to the prayer meeting where they'll be there as well. And you'll get time talking with them. You'll make the connections of, gosh, you've been here and you do these things. and This is us loving and getting to know one another. The second thing that this implies, if we're going to actually do what the Bible calls, is we have to know the commands and teachings and instructions in Scripture well enough to know what is faithful obedience and what is not. So one, you have to know who that person is that you're supposed to hold accountable. And then you have to know, okay, what it is that constitutes disobedience. You have to know what the teachings are in Scripture. What is it that you're supposed to do? What is it that I'm supposed to do? This is why every Sunday as we gather, every Lord's Day, really as we sit in these classes and Sunday sessions, this is us instructing you in the Word. You also have your, your covenant, right? Your membership covenant that uh, you can fall back to and read the covenants, the, the commitments you've made together as a body of Christ. The aim of this practice is not to bring condemnation. This is not to shame somebody into oblivion, to put them down. This is not a permanent accusing, a heaping of shame on somebody who doesn't deserve it. This is a shame that is intended to bring to light sin. A pattern of willful, willful disobedience to the word of God that ultimately harms the community of God and themselves. Friends, you will truly love your brother or sister in Christ when you refuse to let them continue walk in sin. Let me say it more strongly. I pray that should you ever see in me a pattern, a whatever sin in my life, that you don't let that go. I'm deadly serious about that. Some of the most loving acts that have ever been done to me is somebody calling me out in, in my sin. And I know they weren't there to destroy me. And it brought shame. But it also brought repentance and true healing, which I am so thankful for. So let me encourage you, when somebody comes to you 
and points out your sin. Brothers and sisters, think of that as the most loving act that person can do in that moment. And repent and trust in Christ. How do I know this is about repentance and restoration? Verse 15 says, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is not a wolf that needs to be kicked out of the church, but a brother that is in error. And this error is serious. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been this warning. Right? There's this warning. Warn him as a brother. What is that warning for? I think it's pointing back to verse 2 when it says, For not all have faith. The reality is that sometimes people come into membership in the local church believing maybe they're even believers, but they're falsely professing faith. They haven't truly been converted, and over time their actions will prove they are not truly born again. Their hearts are not made new to love God. So the warning to a believer will be a wake-up call to repentance. And to the unbeliever, same thing, but it may lead to excommunication And the real warning is that unless they turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone, they face the wrath of God, which is a million times worse than a momentary, fleeting feeling of shame. So by warning your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are warning them that ultimately you want to keep them from that place, from hell and the wrath of God. So whether you are a believer who is idle, needing the prodding work of being warned, or you're an unbeliever who has woken up to the fact that you haven't been truly converted, you have but one hope. Turn to Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. You may be wondering, what is this all about? Who is this Jesus? Let me use my illustration that I made at the beginning. You are on a ship that is sinking fast whole world is. And your only hope of being saved from death and destruction is by trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. There's no other way. Any one of us elders or members would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. If you have questions about that, come find us after the service. So friends, let me close with this. I do pray that your faith would increase all the more as you look to Christ, who is soon to return. He is currently making us more into his image, refining us through trials, suffering, persecution. And he will establish you because, praise be to God, he has chosen you as his first fruits to be saved. You are saved in Christ, brothers and sisters. Does your faith feel weak? Don't worry, we have a strong God. Do you feel undeserving? Yeah. Nevertheless, our Lord has loved us first and loves us still. And since he loves us so much and has saved us from such a great danger, let us hold fast to his word. Let us pray the word. Let us work according to his word. And let us warn and encourage each other, the people of the word. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that your word is plain and sure and true. And you say in 2 Thessalonians 3 that the command is just to work quietly. You've not commanded us to become superheroes, to do work that is beyond us. On earth, we've given, we're given work that you've just called us to do, to live simply as your disciples. In some ways, it's so simple. And yet, in other ways, Lord, we can't live according to your word unless you make us new and give us the ability, unless you make us faithful to your word. I pray that you would do that this morning, today, going forward, that you would encourage the people whom you have saved, that you will establish them, that you will make them steadfast because of the steadfastness of Christ. And so encourage our hearts, Lord. May we work according to the grace that you have given us. We thank you, we praise you, we pray all these things in Jesus' name.